Uh, well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under the row of chairs in front of you. If you can grab a Bible, you're going to be looking at Genesis 18 verses 16 to 33 this morning. Second half of Genesis 18. Follow along with me as I read for us Genesis 18, beginning in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. May God bless the reading of his word. So last week, we looked at the first half of Genesis 18, where the Lord appeared to Abraham and Sarah in the form of three men, and where Abraham and Sarah put together this lavish meal, and it showed this great amount of 
hospitality to them. And where these, quote unquote, men announced that this time next year, Sarah would have a son. And we saw, right, how God is great and how nothing is too hard for the Lord. And this morning we come to the second half of Genesis 18, where the Lord is going to reveal to Abraham what he's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah, and where Abraham is going to bargain with the Lord. What we're going to see is that God is good, that the judge of all the earth will do what is just. And this is a pertinent passage of scripture this morning because Today, we are recognizing Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Today, we are bringing attention to the value and worth of every human being, regardless of gender, age, race, or ability. For example, the World Health Organization reports that around 73 million abortions take place worldwide each year. That's just over two abortions a second, every second for a year. So what we want to do today is highlight the importance of choosing life. But this year, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday takes on a, a new meaning, as it were. Because you see, last year, by God's providence, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the landmark piece of legislation that made access to abortion a legal right. There's still so much work to be done in what this 49-year-long piece of legislation being overturned, what this decision means is that thousands of babies will now have the right to live. But the question is, what about those babies whose right to live was taken from them? What about those who died before knowing how to refuse the evil and choose the good? Isaiah 7 verse 16. Why didn't God step in and do something? Why didn't God prevent all of the death, all of this death from happening? This doesn't apply just to abortion. Uh, As a couple who have gone through two miscarriages, these questions are ones that we've wrestled with. You know, maybe you yourself have experienced or witnessed someone being devalued based on their gender or age or race or ability. The question is, why would God allow this to happen? Why I said this is a pertinent passage of scripture this morning is because there is a question in our text pertaining to the nature of God. The question is found in verse 25. It says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Essentially, the question is asking, is God good? Will God do what is just? And the answer that we are going to see in our text is that God is good, 
that he will indeed do what is just. Before we get to verse 25, we need to understand the context in this passage. So I invite you to look back with me to verse 16. It says, And the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. So like a good host that he is, Abraham escorted his heavenly guests as they departed from his tent. But there is a, an ominous tone as his guests then set their gaze upon Sodom. Now, we, we've already seen in Genesis that Sodom is filled with wickedness. When Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom in Genesis 13, it said that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And we know from the next chapter, Genesis 19, that judgment is coming soon. So in verse 17, the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am going to do? Now it's unclear who the Lord is, is speaking to here. You know, it could be that the triune God is having a conversation with himself, like what we saw in Genesis 1 before creating Adam and Eve, and like what God does in Genesis 3 before banishing Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. But whether the Lord is speaking to himself or whether he's speaking to the, the two angels who are with him, what is clear is that the Lord answers his own question. And he gives two reasons why Abraham should know what is about to take place, what is going to happen with Sodom and Gomorrah. The first reason is that Abraham is going to become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So this goes back to God's initial promise back in Genesis chapter 12. That all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. So in other words, Abraham should know what is going to happen to one of these quote-unquote nations to which he was to be a blessing. Since they are about to experience the curse of God's judgment and not the blessing that comes through being close to Abraham, God's conduit of blessing, the father of many nations should know what is going to happen. But the second reason is that Abraham was to command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Again, in other words, Sodom and Gomorrah would be a teaching tool for Abraham to use to instruct his children in the way of righteousness. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Peter says that God turned Sodom and Gomorrah to ash as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And so when his children would ask, Father, what's with that city over there that's burnt out and smells like sulfur, Abraham could say to them, that is what happens to a people who reject God's will and God's ways. So it's, it's like a, a living illustration. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah would be to Abraham and to his descendants. And so the Lord says to Abraham in verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. 
I will go down to see whether they have done all together to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is essentially screaming out and has reached the ears of the Lord. But it's, it's more than that. It's more than just the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah screaming out. Just like the cries of the Israelites in Egypt, in Exodus chapter 2, here the cries of the oppressed in Sodom and Gomorrah have made their way to the Lord. We, we know that Sodom is most famous for its sexual immorality, which we will see clearly in, in the next chapter in Genesis 19. But in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, the Lord says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. So we get a little inside look into the sin of Sodom, one of the many sins of Sodom, I guess. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Oh, that's a... Not a very positive reflection of the city of Sodom. The inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah cared only for themselves while they brutalized and oppressed the poor and needy among them. Right? There, there were no human rights. There, there was no value and, and worth and dignity of human beings. There, there was no sanctity of human life Sunday. There was only violence and oppression and brutality. In many ways, we still see Sodom and Gomorrah today, don't we? Historian David Wells writes, there is violence on the earth. The liberated search only for power. Industry despoils the earth. The powerful ride roughshod over the weak. The poor are left to die on street gates. The unborn are killed before they can ever see the rich and beautiful world that God has made. The elderly are encouraged to get on with the business of dying so that we might take their places. The many forms that violence takes in our world provide stunning reminders of how false have been the illusions about freedom with which we have for two centuries been enticed in the West. Not a very good reflection of our culture. The cries of the oppressed in Sodom and Gomorrah, they've reached the ears of the Lord, and now he would come down to see if it was indeed so, which recalls the Lord coming down at Babel to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the same is true today. The Lord hears the cries of the babies in the womb. He hears the cries of the elderly who have been mistreated and neglected. He hears the cries of the teenage girl who has been raped. He hears the cries of the wife who has been abandoned. He hears the cries of the poor who have been humiliated. The Lord hears the cries of them all. And there is coming a day when the Lord will come down to deal according to the outcry that has come to him. 
<clears throat> excuse me, when all that is wrong will be made right. And when the Lord will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. Revelation 21, verse 4. On that day, God will do what is just. <coughs> Abraham is in a privileged position to get an inside look into what is going to happen. <clears throat> Hence why Second Chronicles 20 verse 7 and Isaiah 41 verse 8 and James 2 verse 23 refer to Abraham as a friend of God. In verse 19, the Lord says, I have chosen Abraham. Literally, God knew Abraham. Servants may not know their master's purposes, but friends do. And as God's friend and as a conduit of, of blessing to the whole world, it was essential that Abraham know the secret counsel of the Lord. And it's important to note that the Lord is telling his plans to Abraham, not because Abraham is trustworthy, but because the Lord has chosen Abraham and will make Abraham into a great nation. The Lord is dealing with Abraham far above what Abraham deserves because of the special status that God in his grace and mercy has bestowed upon him. And God didn't look at Abraham and go, you're perfect, I'll take you. No. God is in the process of making Abraham perfect. And he does that by choosing him and makes him a conduit of blessing to the rest of the nations. And the same is true for us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Abraham, you see, God, by his grace, has made us friends. In John 15, verses 13 to 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, Jesus says, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Well, that sounds very much like what the Lord is doing here with, with Abraham. Like Abraham, the Lord calls us friends and has revealed his will for our lives in his word. Not because we are deserving of such, but again, because he has chosen us. And the Lord has dealt with us far above what we deserve because of the special status that God in his grace and mercy has bestowed upon us. As such, there is a, a humility and a, and a reverence that we must have when we come before the Lord our God. We, we see this with, with Abraham in verses 23 to 25. It says, that the, it says that Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 
50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The Hebrew word there for drew near, when it says that Abraham drew near to the Lord, the Hebrew word there is nigash. Uh, it's used several times throughout the Torah to refer to priestly activity, where the priests were commanded to draw near to the Lord. And so we see here that, that Abraham is, is functioning like a priest and he's interceding on behalf of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. This ultimately points to the person of Jesus Christ, who is our true and better high priest. Hebrews 4, verses 15 to 16 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What Abraham is doing here is he's drawing near with confidence to God's throne of grace, knowing that, there will, that he will receive there mercy and he'll find grace to help in his time of need. And the same is true for us. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love and whoever lives and pleads for me. We can come before God's throne of grace in prayer, knowing that we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help in our time of need. But there are two dangers to avoid when it comes to prayer that we see in our text. The first danger is to approach the Lord too familiarly or too cavalierly. There's a danger of treating God like an old pal or like a cosmic genie who will give me what I want. We must understand that while we may draw near to God's throne of grace, we are still talking to the king of the universe who created and who sustains all things by his powerful word. We are still communicating with, with that God. Abraham models this for us. He understands that it is a privilege to speak to the Lord. He says in verse 27, I who am but dust and ashes. Again in verse 30, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Again in verse 31, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Again in verse 32, Oh, let the Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Right? Abraham acknowledges that there is a, a creator creature distinction. Right? He, he, he never loses sight, and thus we must never lose sight of the fact that there is a, a gulf between us and God, that, that he is in the heavens and we are on earth, that he is the maker and we are his workmanship, that he is God and that we are not. And so one danger to avoid 
when we come to God in prayer is to approach the Lord too familiarly, and thus we lose our awe of God. But then the danger on the other hand is to not approach God at all and to think that he is so transcendent and so holy that he he couldn't possibly want to hear from me. But that's not true either. What we just learned in in the first session of our Psalm 23 Bible study this week is that the Lord is my shepherd. That there there is a a nearness, there's an intimacy with the Lord that we experience in the Christian life. And when we keep this nearness with the Lord at bay, right, if if we don't think that we we can approach God's throne of grace at all, then, then we stop coming to him in prayer and we stop praying for hard things because we think that that he's unapproachable and he's not. He welcomes us into his presence. Abraham dares to say to the Lord, would you, would you hear me one more time about this? Right, like the, the persistent widow in Jesus' parable in, in Luke chapter 18, who kept coming to the judge asking for justice. Abraham keeps knocking on God's door asking for justice. And do you notice who he's asking for justice for. It's Sodom, this wicked city. Right now, it just so happens that Lot is residing in in Sodom. So there's the the potential that that Abraham is asking for justice in Sodom because he only cares about saving Lot and Lot is in Sodom. But that's, that's not the prayer that Abraham prays to the Lord, is it? No, Abraham prays a different prayer. And notice also that Abraham does not pray that the Lord would spare the righteous and just cause them to to flee God's judgment. No, Abraham prays a different prayer. Abraham prays for the sake of the righteous would you spare the entire city? He's asking for the whole city to be spared for the sake of X amount of righteous in said city. So you see, Abraham, he's the exact opposite of Jonah, for example, who, when the people of the city of Nineveh repented, was perturbed that Nineveh didn't get wiped off the face of the earth. Jonah even goes so far as to say that he didn't want to preach in Nineveh in the first place because he knew that the Lord was a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. But Abraham, even though Sodom has not repented, and even though they may not ever repent, is saying to the Lord, Lord, be gracious and merciful to them. Be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to them. Relent from this disaster. Abraham here is praying that God would spare the wicked. Which is not unlike the Lord Jesus who taught us to to love 
your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And who modeled this while on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yet how often do we do this? How often do we pray like this? How often do we pray for our enemies? How often do we pray for those who are antagonistic to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what is preached from this pulpit? How often do we, do we pray for those who set themselves up against God and his people? Right? And, not, and not pious prayers like, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, you know, extortioners and, and unjust and adulterers, or even like this abortion doctor. But praying that God would be gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Have we, have we prayed for our enemies like that lately? May we not be quicker to see God's judgment executed on our enemies than God is to save our enemies. May we not be quicker to see God's judgment executed than God is to save. Because we know that God is mighty to save. But it is only possible to pray this way when we realize how holy God is and how awesome God's judgment is. When we understand that God is so holy and cannot tolerate sin and that the wicked deserve literal and eternal punishment for their crimes of rebellion against God, we can't not pray this way for lost souls. But it, it, it takes a heart changed by God's grace to pray like this. John MacLeod, uh, a journalist in Scotland, wrote an article on the subject of hell in the Glasgow Herald, the largest newspaper in Scotland. He ended that article with these words. I've never doubted in the reality of such a place, the hell of deep and lasting darkness. But I've never thought of it in popular terms as a nasty boiler room run by little men in red tights. Hell is ultimately a negative, a place of nothing but anguish. It is a place without God and without anything of God, without light, without warmth, without friendship, without peace, no racks, no pinchers, no claws, only the fires of an awakened conscience and a burning thirst of a frustrated ego. The wicked ones of history, they will be there. The killers and the exploiters, libertines and gossips, rapists and drunkards, they will be there. Those whose gods were sex or money or ambition or power, they will be there. Catholics, Baptists, Presbyterians, if their only faith was their religiosity, who had nothing for eternity but denominational adherence, they will be there. And then the darkest, thickest corner of all, the nice ministers, 
the jolly vicars, the benevolent bishops who told their people that it was heaven for all and that love is all that matters. This I believe. But I believe too that there is only one escape by flight to Christ and faith in his finished work. Living in his service, but never looking to such toils for my salvation. But there is the final paradox. To believe in this latter end of all things and to live and walk in a world that must one day melt in fervent heat. To walk among the living dead with my bright smile and polite talk and never to challenge and never to warn. When we have seen our God in his righteousness and we have seen the wickedness of humanity, we know the end that must come. But the one who knows the heart of God has the heart of God. And it is not the heart of God that the wicked should perish, but that they would turn and repent and find salvation. Have we prayed like that lately? Abraham here, he prays this merciful prayer for lost sinners. And notice that the Lord doesn't get upset with Abraham or say to Abraham, you know, how dare you take advantage of my grace like this? No, the Lord indulges Abraham's request and he keeps listening to Abraham as he boldly makes his requests, right? Like, like Jacob that we're going to see later on in, in Genesis who will wrestle with the angel. Abraham wrestles with God bringing the, the number down from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10 righteous persons. Some say that the Lord here is, is changing his mind, but the Lord knows what he's going to do. He knows what is going to happen in Sodom. He knows how many righteous are there in Sodom. Yet the Lord engages in relationship with Abraham. Right? Even, even after the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah go up in flames, Genesis 19 verse 29 says that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. overthrow. Thus, Abraham's assessment of the Lord in verse 25 holds true. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. It's impossible for God to do anything that is unjust. His judgments are good and right. In the end, Sodom and Gomorrah will get what they deserve. There's not even 10 righteous persons in the city. The wicked will thus be destroyed and the righteous will be spared just as God had said. Now, no doubt the, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, would have railed against God for being so, quote unquote, unfair to them. You know, they might have said, you know, why are you singling us out for punishment like this? But the truth is that no one gets worse than they deserve. No one gets worse than they deserve. The, the question is often asked, you know, why, why do bad things happen to, to good people? This is essentially the, what the, the book of Job seeks to answer. But the better question is, why do good things happen to anyone, bad or good? Right? 
in the Psalms. Many, many of the, the, the psalmists are frustrated that the rain will fall on, on the righteous and the wicked. <laughs> but the question is, really, why do good things happen at all? When we, when we stand before God at the judgment, we will receive exactly what we deserve because the judge of all the earth will do what is just. And as such, we can, we can trust God, right? Even when we wonder why he would allow certain things to happen, we can trust that God will do what is just. We can trust that he is a good and righteous judge who will dole out his judgment fairly. And how do we know this? Because Jesus became sin on the cross, bearing all the unrighteousness and injustices of all those who come to him, even though he was neither unrighteous nor did he have any sin against him. On the cross, Jesus suffered the, the fiery wrath of God's righteous judgment in order to redeem us from our sins. Galatians 3 verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Not 50, not 45, not 40 or 30 or 20 or 10, but one. The Lord says, yes, for the sake of one truly righteous person, my beloved son, I will have mercy upon wicked sinners. And praise God for that. As God's people, then, we, we are to live lives of, of righteousness and justice, reaching out to the needy, loving the sinner, giving of our resources, sacrificing ourselves for the lost, praying that God would have mercy upon their souls, and ultimately trusting that the judge of all the earth will indeed do what is just. Because he will. Because he has. For the sake of Christ's righteousness counted to us, God will judge us to be righteous, though we deserve to be counted among the wicked. He will save those who flee to the only truly righteous person and will spare them judgment for his sake. So yes, God is good. And yes, God is great. And we can hang our hat on these two fundamental truths about our Lord and God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great grace and abundant mercy. We thank you for the righteousness of Christ that has been counted to each one who fly to him for safety. 
help us to know your love for us. And not only for us, but for all people. And how you have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. It is only in you that we truly live. And so help us to see that you are the judge of all the earth who will do what is just and give us boldness in our proclamation of you. That through our our message, our preaching, some might come to repentance and faith. Now this is only made possible by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would give us that grace to do just that. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.